What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Markets at record highs. Stocks have recovered all the losses they suffered from the coronavirus. But has the bounce back been too quick? We'll ask. Casper surging on its first day of trading. The lesson other unicorns could learn from its IPO. And Uber slight comeback, a rough ride for Peloton, and tomorrow's jobs report will be a doozy, and we'll tell you why. But we do begin with the markets, and Dom Chu has those numeros for us, Dom. All right, so a doozy is the fact that we've now recovered all and more of all those coronavirus fears in the marketplace. And as you mentioned before, this idea that the market now is at record highs, again, for key market gauges. By the way, for the S&P 500, we were up about 13 points. That's the highs of the days right now. We were just about flat at the low. So, again, a very generally positive day for the markets in overall. Let's check out one part that is a huge focus point, and that is the IPO market, given some high-profile ITFs, IPOs in the ETFs, everything today. The Renaissance IPO ETF is up 8% on a year-to-date basis, handily topping the S&P 500. However, if you take a look at the overall picture for IPOs over the last year, take a look at this. It's still somewhat underperforming. So we'll see what happens with IPOs given Casper today and the stock of the day. We're continuing to watch what's happening with Tesla shares. That roller coaster ride that we've seen, again, moving to the upside by 4% in today's trade. Still, though, 900 and almost $990 at the highs here. We've moved down through there and back up again. Does Tesla's rough ride continue? We'll continue to watch that stock. Back over to you, Kelly. Yeah, pause in the thrilling action there for now, Dom. Thanks. Uh, stocks are at all-time highs today following a fourth straight day of gains, and that does pretty much erase the losses last week from coronavirus fears. Is the rally back on track now, or has the bounce back been too quick? Let's bring in Bahan Janjigian. He's Chief Investment Officer at Greenwich Wealth Management, and Winnie Caesar is Head of Credit Strategy at Wells Fargo Securities. Uh, great to see you both. So, Bahan, the, this, the rebounds in this rally, not just this time around or this year even, but frankly for the past decade, have been extremely sharp. What does that tell you? Why is it that every time we seem to, seem to move lower, we snap right back? You know, I remember a time when the stock market would go down and a lot of advisors would tell their clients, so you should focus on the long term. Over the long term, the market comes back. Now it comes back almost instantaneously. So just wait, a, wait a few days. That's right. Yeah. If it sells off, just buy. It'll come back. So I think uh, investors are getting used to this. They expect the market to come back. The resiliency has been unbelievable. Nothing can keep this market down. We just went through a period of time with the coronavirus, as you mentioned, and also a president that was being uh, tried, a socialist that's moving up in the polls, right. yet everybody's ignoring all that. So does that concern you? You're, you're a value-driven kind of guy. I mean, do you like to see this type of momentum in the markets when the ETF, uh, momentum ETF was yesterday at all-time highs. Well, I do believe the market goes higher over the long term, but over the short term, it could go anywhere. And I think that we are a little bit too pricey right now as far as the market goes. So I would not be surprised to see a sell-off. So I am keeping some cash available in my clients' accounts to take advantage of any type of meaningful sell-off that occurs. Winnie, when you look at credit, what does the pricing there tell you? Does it confirm the signals from the stock market or does it, you know, deny them somehow? So credit is very interesting because it's 
kind of a mixed bag. You have the investment grade market and the higher quality parts of the leveraged finance market absolutely performing very strongly. But then you have the fringes, you call it triple C's, high yield energy, where it's taking a much uh, longer time for that segment of the market to catch up. So I think it's what it's telling you is investors are very sensitive to the liquidity that central banks have injected into the market, but they're still a little bit cautious on, you know, the longer term fundamental prospects, particularly with valuations as tight as they currently are. Winnie, where do you guys see opportunity in credit? I mean, are there sectors where people can say, okay, energy, for example, you know, the sell-off in oil that we've seen this year has been pretty shocking, uh, given what's happened with concerns about China's growth. Is it overdone? Do you see, you know, opportunities there? We're still fairly cautious on energy, particularly on the leverage finance side of things. I think in the pipelines, the higher quality parts of energy, there are some opportunities there, especially after this most recent sell-off. However, in order for energy as a whole to move higher, you have to see some sort of sustained rally in both oil and natural gas prices. You know, more headlines today on the natural gas side of things regarding China and imports, which is weighing pretty heavily on that segment of the market. And so we, we need to see something sustainable there. Now, that's not to say that there's no places to put money to work in credit. I think if you have a, a nuanced strategy that really focuses on credit fundamentals, particularly in those single Bs that are actually giving you a little bit of yield, mm-hmm. um, places along the curve that are a little bit steeper, kind of off-the-run securities, you can definitely capture some alpha and incremental spread compression in your portfolios. Uh, but we're not ready to, you know, wave in the, the whole buy on high-yield energy quite yet. Yeah, it's been such a hard-hit sector, Vahani. I see you, you do like Murphy Oil here as, as one example. What are some names in the market overall where you see opportunities for investors who might say, look, where do I go when I don't want to pile in after the trillion-dollar tech names, for instance? Yeah, although I, although I do believe the market itself is, is kind of overvalued, uh, there are good stocks to buy. And the two stocks that I was buying all throughout last year are IBM and Adient. Adient is a manufacturer of uh, automobile seats. And uh, I think both of these stocks uh, were very cheap, uh, very undervalued, and uh, IBM, of course, pays a great dividend, so I was taking that opportunity to add to my clients' accounts. Now, both of them have recently moved up a lot, so I'm not adding now, but I'm not selling either. Are you encouraged by the CEO uh, shift at IBM? I am. I think uh, it's about time. Uh, I've said before that uh, this is something that the board should be looking at very carefully, um, and I'm, I'm happy it's happening. Now, I do think uh, Ginny Romady did make the right moves a little bit late, but she did try to take the focus to cloud computing. Uh, IBM is moving in that direction very fast now, but uh, the CEO change, I think, is a very good thing. All right, well, some ideas for both stocks and credit, uh, for depending on what investors are looking for, uh, even as we're at all-time highs again. Thank you both. We appreciate it today. Bahan Janjigian and Winnie Caesar. A big move by China today, slashing tariffs in half on $75 billion worth of American goods, and that was sooner than anticipated. Here to talk about what might be behind this move and what it'll mean for the U.S. economy, Tori Smith joins me. She's trade economist at the Heritage Foundation. Tori, welcome. And these headlines certainly grabbed uh, investors' attention worldwide. What do they say to you? Well, really what this seems like is part of the negotiations uh, post-Phase 1 deal. So as you know, the Trump administration announced they would be reducing some tariffs by half. Um, and that will go into effect on Valentine's Day. And so China is doing a similar move in kind. And it just seems to be part of part of that natural business. And we'll see further uh, in the coming weeks how China will fully implement this Phase 1 agreement. You know, Tori, China hasn't exactly volunteered uh, tariff cuts. I mean, they've been 
hard fought by the U.S. to win during these trade negotiations. Why does it suddenly seem like they're popping up and saying, hey, look at look what we're putting on the table? I mean, does it are they coming from a place of weakness? Is that coronavirus related? Oh, no. And I think it's really important here to make clear that these are not tariff cuts from the baseline tariffs. What this is is a partial rollback of retaliatory tariffs. So the United States did a partial rollback of its tariffs that imposed on China, and then China did a partial rollback of retaliation. So this is not improving the status quo of three years ago in terms of tariff rates being charged between the U.S. and China. It's really just undoing the bad that was done. How much uh, impact do you think the coronavirus has had on, on the economy there, and how is that likely to further impact the trade situation between the two countries? I think really the impacts in the Chinese economy in the long term are really to to be seen. It's, it's too soon to make those decisions. But what we honestly need to focus on in the bilateral relationship is how we can move this forward into the phase two, in addition to how we can implement phase one. What was the surprise to you, if any, from this announcement today? It really wasn't a surprise to me at all. I think we were all waiting to see what the reciprocal activity would be by China, given that the United States is doing these drops on February 14th. So happy Valentine's Day to everyone. We'll have a little bit of a decrease in costs uh, from from a few weeks ago. Yeah, to the soybean farmers, uh, maybe some of the energy producers and and so forth as well. Um, So then finally, this leaves us uh, moving forward in a period of where we should expect those same sectors to be hard hit from the lack of Chinese demand, because that economy clearly has taken some kind of short-term hit uh, from the virus, from the shutdown of most of the economy uh, the last several weeks. How big an impact will that have on the U.S. economy, do you think? In terms of the U.S. economy, I think pretty marginal. The important thing here that I think is distinctful is that this decrease in tariffs will actually make it easier for the Chinese to buy things like soybeans. Basically, this this list of tariffs that are being reduced correlates with the list of things the administration has asked China to buy more of from the United States. Soybeans, other agriculture, energy, and, and automobiles. So it really just kind of coincides, makes it a little bit easier for China to make those purchases. Yeah, it makes it cheaper for them. <laughs> Tori, thanks so much. It's good to see you today. We appreciate it. Tori Smith from Heritage. And for more on the coronavirus, tune in to CNBC's special report, Outbreak Coronavirus, live at tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. And here's what else is straight ahead on The Exchange. Coming up, Casper investors may get a good night's sleep today as the stock soars. But is this one-day pop sustainable? Plus, after a very rough start, Uber seems to finally be getting on the right path. Will tonight keep the momentum going? And tomorrow's jobs report is going to come with a big surprise. This is The Exchange on CNBC. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Casper making its trading debut at the New York Stock Exchange today. It opened at $14.50 a share. This after pricing at the low end of the range at $12. Uh, right now, Casper is trading about 23% to $14.78. Bob Bassani is live on the floor of the Stock Exchange with the latest. Bob? And uh, right in front of the post here, a very active volume. So they're floating 8.3 million shares already. You can see right here, Kelly, 8 million shares have traded. That's a lot. When you get 100% of the volume traded in a single of the float in a single day, that's a lot. And we're not even uh, at 2 o'clock, essentially. So uh, priced at 12, opened at 14.50, and still trading above that 14.77, although well off of its highs. This has been a, a lot of issues around this, a number of things happening here. Number one, uh, investors have pushed back on the idea of money losing companies. So it's very simple right now. You either make money or you get a haircut, to be perfectly blunt about it. And then you have the selling to consumer. The direct to consumer category is challenging. Ask Peloton or Smile Direct. Finally, there's the competition that's out there. We have the old firms, the Temper Sealies out there, TPX. They've been around a long time. They're profitable. Newer firms that compete against them, though, like Purple Innovations, PRPL, uh, those kinds of firms, uh, they're still out there, and they make money, too, although barely. So a lot of competition. By the way, Kelly, we are in a hot market right now. The IPO ETF is at a historic high right now. We've had firms like uh, Uber and Lyft, which were laggards last year, doing a lot better this year. Kelly, back to you. And in fact, we're going to touch on that a little bit later on. Uh, Bob, stay right there. I want to bring in Dom Chu. Dom, in a way, this was a psychology 101 lesson. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, make, it's kind of a marketing lesson to make people feel like they're getting a deal and you can get a good first day performance, but this is a stock still worth, or a company worth about half of what it was worth last year. I mean, this used to be part of the Wall Street 101 playbook when it came to, to IPOs, especially companies who are looking to sell just a fraction of their company and then get a valuation on that fraction of a sale. So you price it at a discount and it gives people a good feeling when the stock actually goes higher and that generates some momentum. There's some psychological benefit to it and then people pour in more as bob said you're going to turn over a hundred percent of what was sold in the ipo in trading today wow. that draws people in right yep. people start to say hey i can make money there and then people buy more and it becomes this kind of cycle as you look at what's happening with the ipo market overall is there going to be a return back to that type of mentality not like hey let's price aggressive 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 mm -hmm. when only 10 percent of our company is public at this price, and then all of a sudden we go down, and the rest of our company is worth even less. Right. You almost want to take the bullet, bite the bullet now, price it at a discount, get the pop, and then the rest of your company yeah. has room to grow. My neighbors are trying to do the same thing in pricing their house. I mean, and some right. of it's just psychology. <laughs> uh, Bob, that said, and there's been a lot of focus on money losing IPOs, and investors aren't interested, but there are big biotech IPOs pricing today. The biotech EP ETFs, the IBB, the XBI, having their best week in more than a year. And here comes Schrodinger and PPD going public, Bob. What yeah. does that tell us, and how are they looking? They're, they're doing really well uh, today. These are kind of exceptional. They're not just your run-of-the-mill biotech company. So PPD priced it. 27, the high end of the range. It opened at 31. You see it's holding up pretty well there. This is a, a company that does biotech research services. So if you're a biotech company and you need high-end labs, you might not have the money to have your own high-end lab. You contract with them to do it. It's a very interesting idea. And you can see it's been holding up very well. Schrodinger's is even more interesting. This is backed by the uh, Bill and uh, Linda Gates Foundation. This is really science fiction stuff. Essentially, it's drug discovery. So you use, a, it's called comp computational software. So you have a software program, you put your data, drug data, in the software program, and it suggests novel molecules for drug development. Really kind of science fiction stuff here. That's also holding up really well. By the way, Kelly, the last couple of IPOs have just been terrific overall. Hmm. Uh, so we look at One Medical, that was last Thursday. That's doing well. Arcutus Biotherapeutics, there's a straight ahead 
a biotech company, but even to Reynolds Consumer. We're talking Reynolds wrap here. Even that has been doing well. All of them are just holding up really well. And I agree with Don, by the way. Price discovery works. They didn't like Casper's pricing on this, and they pushed it down. There was no interest in it. Price at 12, opens at 14.50, and still trading above and that. Frankly, I think that's pretty successful you so know, far. Dom, the, the, and Bob makes a good point with the drug discovery companies. They might not have the, the profitability that investors are looking for, but they have the option on some big future gains. A company like Casper, you, you, you kind of think you, you know what you're getting. You don't have the same upside. Well, it's kind of, but you know what you're getting with those binary results pharmaceutical or biopharma companies as well. I mean, I remember when I came in this morning, Schrodinger, I'm thinking Schrodinger's cat. Right. Is, it al- is, that, is that stock or IPO going to be alive? Is it going to be dead? Let's open the box and find out. Well, the box is open and Schrodinger's cat is very much alive in this particular market. But, but to your point, the notion right now that the IPO market can act the way it is, is perhaps maybe comforting to some investors out there because we are seeing a 2020 start off with a decent IPO market. The question then becomes whether or not that can stay that way and yes, direct-to-consumer companies, they're going to face some hurdles. Remember, yeah. this is a hyper-competitive industry for a lot of these companies. I know. And, and Casper's one of them. And, Bob, even though these, these biotech names have done well that you're highlighting, there are plenty of flops. We see these stocks losing yeah. you know, their entire market cap sometimes you know, if a discovery process or an innovation goes bad. I mean, they're more like lotto tickets right. sometimes. Yes, and, and, and biotech has a very high uh, failure rate. But I'm very encouraged when you see a company like you... I'm baffled why people say Casper was a failure because they were 17 to 19. They priced at 12. That's the market operating officially. That's our, our viewers who want to buy this stuff and people out there saying, uh, no, I'm sorry, not at that price. We're interested much, much lower. And they collectively say, we don't want it. And then they have to drop the price. And now look at it. It's trading above that price. So that I can view this as all very successful. By the way, I love it when Dom makes references to quantum physics. Just, <laughs> Do you, I wonder if that's not on. where the company borrowed the name uh, Bob, but, but it's fair to yeah. say if you're the CEO of Casper and you wanted that unicorn status, you could argue it's a failure in that sense. I mean, they had an opportunity in the past that kind of turned down, maybe to be bought by Target, depending on, on the rumors out there. But oh, if sure. that metric was important to them, they're not getting it today. It could be some time. You know, you know, I, you know the side that I think we should be on? I'm inside the people who are, who are the investors yeah. that are out there. So, yes, you can say, OK, it was a unicorn. It was $1.1 billion, and now it went public, and the valuation's $500 million. Therefore, it's a failure. No, I, I see it as the public market fairly valuing something that's out there. The public market actually working and pushing back on something that they thought was too high priced. They want it, just not that that you know price. That's not a failure to me. All Hypothetically, right. this could still be a billion-dollar company sure. at some point in the future. I mean, I don't have a crystal ball, but if it keeps going like this, it could get that valuation back and maybe even more. So long-term, who knows? Casper, I don't know. It, Maybe it you're not could, losing sleep. It, it could still become a unicorn there you go. Uh, once again. Dom and Bob, thank you both very much. Okay. We appreciate it. Coming up, shares of Twitter soaring on record user growth. CEO Jack Dorsey calling improvements to the platform transformational. Is their disastrous 2019 truly in the past? We will debate that. Plus, we'll have more on the coronavirus fallout. What happens when Chinese tourists can't travel? We'll look at the worldwide impact and where it will be felt the most. And a reminder, you can always watch us or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in two. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, 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 click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress.
stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Welcome back to The Exchange. Here are some of the movers this hour. Shares of Yum! Brands are down about 4% today. The parent of KFC, Taco Bell, and Pizza Hut missed on earnings. It did beat on revenue, but same-store sales growth came in short, with Pizza Hut being the weakest link, and you can see investors not happy about that. Meanwhile, shares of Zynga are up 14% on strong earnings. Analysts highlighting a rise in paying gamers and a boost from ad revenues. Words with friends, which I still haven't tried, is still one of the standouts for the company, so maybe I have some time. And shares of Estee Lauder are up 4% after beating on the top and bottom line. Skincare and makeup were big upside drivers. The company did lower its full-year guidance due to coronavirus headwinds. Uh, and Estee Lauder is up about 4% right now. And shares of the New York Times are hitting a 15-year high after reporting better-than-expected profit and revenue on surging digital subscribers. The company saying it will raise prices for some digital plans for the first time in nine years. Now to Sue Herrera for a CNBC News update. Sue? Hello, Kelly. Hello, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. President Trump speaking to his supporters at the White House after being acquitted by the Senate on all impeachment charges. This is really not a news conference. It's not a speech. It's not anything. It's just we're sort of, uh, it's a celebration. I've done things wrong in my life, I will admit. Not purposely, but I've done things wrong. But this is what the end result is. The NTSB says speed may have played a factor in last month's deadly crash involving a tour bus on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. It released its preliminary report on the crash this morning. Three tractor trailers, the tour bus and a car were involved in that crash, which killed five people. And the New York Knicks are close to hiring a former agent as their new president of basketball operations. Leon Rose in line to take over for Steve Mills, who was fired earlier this week. Rose's clients include Joel Embreed, Chris Paul, Devin Booker, Carl Anthony Towns, and Carmelo Anthony. We'll keep you posted, Cal. That's the news update. Back to you. Sue, thank you very much. Sue Herrera, don't go anywhere because we've got a whole lot more ahead on The Exchange. Ahead, the Bluebird takes flight. Peloton's ride is slowing down. Why the world needs the Chinese consumer. And the huge revision investors should expect in tomorrow's jobs report. It's all coming up on The Exchange. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It is Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines are Dom Chu. Welcome back. Contessa Brewer, welcome. And CNBC.com tech editor Steve Kovac. Welcome, sir. Uh, first, let's talk some Twitter, which has reported quarterly results. They missed on earnings but beat on revenue, had the first billion-dollar quarter ever, in fact. The company beat expectations for the number of users as well, and the shares are up. More than 17% right now, the biggest jump it's had in a couple of years. There's your check, 17.5%, a big one, Steve. Yeah, and this is all about the this monetizable 
daily active users. Those are the people, when you boot up Twitter, you actually see the ads. And they, had, they struggled with this the previous quarter, and they kind of switched it on for more people. Hmm. I'm a, one of those heavy Twitter power users yes, who you wasn't are. seeing I, ads. I'm enjoying following you, by the way. <laughs> if you don't follow Steve, your parents' home decor, I mean, there's oh my, so oh many enjoyable topics. But th- this was one of the first times they've even reported that metric, Exactly. Right? Oh, it's their third time reporting that so metric. So why, why so... Is that okay? I mean, not, not to say that's okay with the SEC, but why do they get to choose when they deploy this metric and when they don't? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. People are still kind of scratching their heads because it's not comparable to what, like, Facebook reports or Snapchat reports. It's but very different. Why does that matter? Like, if they, if if Apple all of a sudden says, well, we don't want to report how many iPhone sales Which we're having. Done, by the yes. way. <laughs> I mean, we're seeing companies just deciding, hey, we're no longer going to announce those metrics anymore. What Whirlpool did it this quarter. They said, <laughs> we're not going to tell you how many washers and dryers we're selling anymore because we don't think it's relevant. <laughs> well, okay then. And by the way, they're not even ca- going to call it daily. It's monetizable, monetizable daily MDA active users. users. Not users. They're no yeah. longer users. Don't forget, we're going to have to figure out, are they going to be tweeters? Are they going to be member? Are they going to be... Wrong enjoy? With- They've just said that they want to have more empathy now for the people who are using Twitter, so they're not going to call them users. They're going to call them, here's my suggestion, enjoyers. They really don't want to make it sound as though they're, like, using a substance. I in mean, is that public, the idea? In public documents. But they're, they're called s- monetizable. These are people who are <laughs> seeing <laughs> ads, so that's kind of strange, it, too. It's an oxymoron, right, isn't it? Right. I, I just bring it up as a point of conversation. But what do we think the takeaway is from the numbers overall? Look, the shares are up 17.5% for a reason. They did have a bad year last year. Is it because the advertising revenue, especially, Dom, suggests this is a, a, a lasting, yes. you know, that's the key. That's the key yeah. answer, yes. I mean, for, for Snap? For Facebook, for Twitter, for any, for Pinterest, it doesn't matter if you're a social platform, you need to demonstrate that you can make money, monetize those users that you have on there. Show them ads, have them click on them, or have them make some kind of a driving decision. Instagram was great during the holiday season about putting ads out there targeted towards you, whether or not you made transactions or not, that's huge. But you take a look at a, a Twitter as a stock. If you look at a chart over the course of just the past, like, say, six months, mm-hmm. this has been pretty much dead money for a while. The 200-day moving average over the long term, the average price hasn't moved over the course of the past several months. And all of a sudden today, it's way above there. So it just goes to show you that these stocks may just need real catalysts and investors to know that they can actually make money doing what they're doing, and all of a sudden, the thesis becomes intact. Mm. Yeah, and I'm, my head's still reeling from that fact yesterday, which is that Instagram does more in revenue than YouTube. Than YouTube, yes. I cannot, I mean, Steve, YouTube is gigantic. Well, keep in mind, YouTube pays that that 15 billion YouTube generated in revenue last year. Most of that goes to the creators. So YouTube isn't even keeping that. Yeah, the cost of goods sold is... Talk about disclosures. We don't know the margins on the YouTube business yet. That is a great, great point. Great point. And a good day for Twitter today. How about Peloton? That's going the other way as their problems keep piling up. They reported second quarter results with no path to profitability in sight. Although Peloton had a smaller loss than expected, wasn't enough to keep the shares from sinking nearly 11 percent right now and by the way our parent comcast nbc universal is an investor in peloton contessa what do you make of it this was the quarter with the infamous peloton lady uh, but when you look at their big jump in subscribers up 96 percent from about 362,000 a year ago i think that is remarkable because again that's that's a monthly fee that's coming in it doesn't matter how long ago somebody bought their peloton how much they use it whether they use it as a clothes rack or not that's a subscription that's getting paid. And I think that that is a, speaking of metrics that should matter to investors. Absolutely. That's a metric that should matter. You know what really surprised me amid all of that focus on that 
famous ad with the woman who got the Peloton right. for Christmas and all this stuff that, which, by the way, I, I still think that probably helped the company a lot more than it hurt it because everyone was talking about it um, and joking about whether they would want one for Christmas. But at the same time, they cut their monthly subscription price substantially. It used to be about $40 a month. Now it's in the 20s. It if that make doesn't juice what? user growth, what will? Right. And they've said that that's their plan. They're going to just focus more on getting subscribers than um, seeing those revenues coming in. And, it's because the bike profits. is so expensive. Yeah. That's why. You, yeah. can, you can stream it on your iPad and you can use your own bike or your own treadmill. Well, that's, that's the thing. That's, that's the key, right? right? Because it's not just the straight bike streaming anymore. You can use it on your smartphone. You can use it on your app for, for iPads, on whatever it is. I think you it's on Roku as well. Right. I mean, yeah. you can do all these <laughs> yeah. different things. So they're, they're taking those price. In, in, in essence, what they're doing is they're putting more items on the menu to let you pick from all at different price points. So some would say that's actually a good thing because then you can get users in no matter what they want to so pay. So how does that work? You put it on your smart TV and then you stand in there and pretend like you're on a bike? No, or there's other exercises you can do. There's running coaches now for like you take it on your... Count me out. But yeah. we all so. know Mirror is the new Peloton in terms of the really high-end sort of you know, savvy fitness device that people want. And my only question, Steve, as they go that route, which is to offer the basically software as a, as a sub- service. S- service, thank yes. you. Yeah. What's to prevent someone else from jumping in and doing the same thing? I mean, do they have a moat there? Yeah, and not much. You're seeing Nordatrack and some of these older fitness brands kind of putting out their Peloton yes. clones. And Talk so, about yeah. Jane Fonda. Exactly. I mean, she, yeah. she had the jump she on everybody it, yeah. else. She knew it. Let's <laughs> do it in your living room. Right. And it's, it, it's going to be very similar to that. But again, it's the Netflix of fitness is what they're really going for and lowering their price gives them scale and, yeah, and it, that's where the excitement they is. They seem like they have the right model, but I think those concerns about, you know, is it a durable franchise and right. in the long run are, are what's uh, hurting the stock today. Uh, let's switch gears, talk about win a little bit. The casino operator is set to report after the bell. Past three weeks have been pretty awful to the stock. Since the coronavirus outbreak, win shares are down about 12%, especially given the fact they make most of their revenue from Macau. Contessa, what's priced in right now? What are we listening for? from them today. Well, well, listen, they're going to want to talk about uh, how they're doing in Macau before this in the quarter and what they're getting out of Boston and how Las Vegas is doing. And all the analysts are going to want to talk about is how long is this Macau impact going to be there? The problem is if you get 75 percent of your revenue, from Macau, and your casinos are closed. Because t- what is the status in Macau right now? Gambling is entirely closed down. So wow. they still can run hotel operations, they can have restaurants, but who's going out to eat right now at a casino? And and also, they don't have the influx of visitors. It's not like anything's happening. Their visitation's off by about 80%. Wow. So you've seen a couple banks, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase and Bank of America, have downgraded the stock right now. You're seeing Refinitiv and S&P Global Ratings looking at the credit and saying, if this continues, they're at risk of default. And so, look, they're in a bad spot. So on the call today, what we're really going to be listening for is, how much cash do you have on hand to weather this storm? What kind of protections have you built into place to be able to deal with this kind of and it's not just that their revenues are down. Remember, they're having to pay salaries and utilities and all these fixed expenses. To keep it going. Harry Curtis at Numer Internet is is estimating that if this continues, you're going to be out like a hundred million dollars per month. Wow. Paying for costs. All right. So he, that's the bad part of the story. Oh, that, there's a good part. But that all makes me wonder why the shares are only down 12%. Right. So here's the interesting part about that whole discussion. And it, it's going to happen with MGM, Las Vegas Sands, anybody who has any presence in Macau. Does this represent a buying opportunity? 
because, as with diseases in the past, they fade. They yeah. and, and, and the economy there and globally, humankind continues to ascend and, once and get over this. Then they all want to go back right to back to, Right, back in there. You're, you're fighting human tendencies right now towards gaming and entertainment. And we know that those meccas do really well, especially in cultures in yep. Asia where they do well. So if you are, the, the issue is you brought it up. How much is already priced in? It should be down more if all of these scenarios are being priced mm-hmm. in. But there are investors out there who are saying to themselves, Whoa, this too shall five pass. years from now, seven years from now, this could have been like a generational buying opportunity. But, but, so, but can I just point out that when you look at other casinos, take Las Vegas Sands, you saw uh, the founder and CEO and chairman, Sheldon Adelson, going in and buying up a ton of shares when the price had plummeted. So some of what you're seeing in the stock price may not have anything to do with sentiment about coronavirus mm-hmm. and how quickly mm-hmm. it recovers. As you're saying, hey, it's cheap. At right. some point, it's coming back. And so I think follow it, the lead. there's some value there. Fair enough. All right. The consumer DNA testing industry is facing a dilemma because demand is slowing down for these kits. Last month, we talked about this the other day. 23andMe laid off 14% of its staff. Now we're learning that Ancestry will lay off nearly 6% of its workforce. Let's bring in CNBC.com healthcare reporter Chrissy Farr. Chrissy, because uh, how do they come back now? I mean, is the problem just that everybody did one of these tests? Yeah, I mean, I actually think that's the exact problem. You've got a certain chunk of people who just want to get these tests. They think it's fun. They want to find out more about their family and their and their health risks. And then there's the rest of us. And for a lot of people, it's just really hard to sell them a $99 or $200 test that they just really don't think they need. And I think these companies are seeing that. Plus, they've just seen plummeting sales in the past year. And they've got a bunch of theories for it, but a big one, and this is just my opinion, I think it might be privacy concerns. All these stories that you saw coming out about Facebook and all these tech companies, I think that actually ended up having a bigger impact on the businesses of Ancestry and 23andMe. I think so, too. Oh, absolutely. And DNA is so much more personal than your photos or your text messages. Your entire genetics, whatever. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, of course, people are going to freak out about that. Right. 23andMe's uh, CEO did say that. She thought privacy was behind it. But the interesting thing is, That company has gone forward, developed a drug based on the DNA of the people who've submitted for it. They've now gone to human trials with a Spanish pharmaceutical partner. It'll be very interesting if you can start making money instead of on the tests themselves on what you create from having that massive database. And my gosh, what about the consent? Did all these people say, hey, use my stuff? Yes, they, that's they great. But, but will everybody else do the same thing, too? I have a real problem tell, telling, especially a medical company, that you can just take my genetic material and do whatever you want with it with, without any kind of regard to what it means for me or my family or my right. privacy or anything else down the line. It is something that I think is going to resonate with a lot of folks out there. And by the way, even the de- the, 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 the the Defense Department. They came out and said, don't do these yes, things. Yes, right? they did. Chrissy, I mean, and, and what else do we know that they're doing with this data? So they're using it for clinical trials. They're using it for pharmaceutical products. Uh, 23andMe has even said that they're hoping to develop drugs. They have a whole therapeutics arm. Ancestry told me yesterday that they are thinking of shifting a lot of the future of their business to the healthcare side and not the genealogy, uh, does your DNA tell you that you're allergic to celery side of the business that's just more fun. Uh, So they all see their future in health, but then that brings up these great questions that you guys have all raised about privacy. Do we know that our DNA, our DNA data is going to be used to help these companies develop new drugs? And frankly, should we get a cut? 
should we get a cut? Can we take it back? I mean, it's it's clever yeah. and devious. I don't know if they meant to do this at all from the start, but the idea of, hey, submit your information. Oh, by the way, we're going to keep it. Then now and we're going to be off to the races with it. And, with yeah. it. Yeah. I took one 10 years ago, and then now I'm just realizing, whoa, I shouldn't have done that. I just thought it was cool. It was on sale for 99 bucks. Might as well try it. Did you find out anything good? Um, I'm 25% more likely than the average person to be obese, which, oh. I mean, look at me. I don't know See, I wanted yeah. to tell you, man. Look, you're putting on a few pounds. We know, throwing the face hair. Yeah, we've seen that trick. Chrissy, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Uh, Chrissy Farr, Dom Chu, Contessa Brewer, and Mr. Kovac. Thanks, guys. There's a big change coming in tomorrow's jobs report, the details, and what it tells us about the U.S. economy. That's next. Welcome back. Tomorrow we get the much-anticipated January jobs report. While it's expected to show a gain of about 158,000 jobs last month, it's also expected to show a major loss of American jobs as well. Steve Leisman has that story. Steve? Kelly, thank you. The government will release its annual benchmark revisions to the jobs data and the preliminary estimate. They're going to lop a half million jobs off the number Americans consider to be really at work. It's set up to be the biggest revision since the 2009 recession. Bigger revisions tend to happen around turning points. You can see that here. It, the model did not pick up well the 09 and 2010 recession and didn't pick up the rebound very well. Since then, we've had very, very limited revisions until right now. It's something the trouble is that the U.S. economy is not really supposed to be in a transition. Or maybe it is. The sectors where the most change is expected include leisure hospitality, 175. Some changes going on there. Maybe some of the Airbnb stuff happening there. Professional business services and and total goods trades, they could be part of the manufacturing problem. And then retail trade down 146,000, the most likely source of the revisions. The government estimates the number of businesses that open and close. What the model may not pick up, among other things, is big changes like in the retail sector where store closings were not accompanied by openings because of online sales, Kelly. So it looks for one one store to close, one store to open, but that's not what happened last year. This is fascinating. And you know there's going to be all sorts of conspiracy theories about what you can stand about what exactly is happening in the U.S. economy, because they'll say, well, wait a minute, if we're shedding half a million jobs right. relative to what we thought, then maybe things are you know, much worse than, than thought. And by the way, it also explains why there was so much division last year over whether the economy was slowing down or not. Remember the Fed rate cuts? I mean, it was very Certainly difficult to figure out. it was overstated. Out. Certainly the number of jobs was overstated, that's for sure. Uh, the month-to-month change won't necessarily change, but the level is what's going to come down. The trouble is that when changes are happening in the economy, we saw there on that chart big transitions, like from from expansion to recession, back into expansion. The model doesn't do a good job with that. Last year, what my understanding is they would, the model would open a new retail store for everyone that closed. Do you know what really happened last year? My guess is no retail stores open. Like the biggest closing of retail stores ever. Wow. 4,000 stores opened. But maybe that's... 9,000 closed. Wow. 9,000 closed. I, I thought we were turning a corner there, at least We might be. The data for this month for the store openings and closing is better. Mm-hmm. But these are early days in the year. We don't, we don't really know yet. But we do know there's transition going on there. It's tough to pick up. There could be it's other employment in sectors that the government's not seeing that's not picked up. But right now, the idea is a half a million yeah. down. 
and we'll start again from there. That is fascinating. Steve, thank you. As always, Steve Leisman. Meanwhile, shares of both Uber and Lyft are posting double-digit gains so far this year. Are the ride-sharing companies hailing a comeback? That's next on The Exchange. Deeper data at CNBC. Gasoline consumption in the U.S. fell 1.5% in the week ending January 31st. That's the fifth consecutive year-over-year drop. Reporting its fourth quarter results after the bell. Remember, their net losses topped a billion dollars last time around. Since then, the stock has rallied nearly 40 percent, despite the CEO saying he doesn't expect to turn a profit until 2021. For more on what's behind this big comeback, I'm joined by Dan Gallagher. He's tech reporter for The Wall Street Journal's Heard on the Street column. And Dan, it's great to see you. And why is ride sharing suddenly looking better to investors? Well, Kelly, I think it benefits in part because these were the two of the worst performing IPOs in last year's big class of IPOs. So I think it created the impression that by the end of the year, by the fall, that expectations had come down a lot and maybe there was just some upside. Um, But now Uber's up. I think today the three-month gain is like 37 percent. Uh, which, which is enormous and, you know, sets up, I think, some really high expectations going into today's print. Fair. I, I wonder, too, how much goes back to these remarks from the CEO of Lyft uh, recently, who had said he was going to change his company's stance to a match and follow position on pricing. Um, is there kind of a tacit uh, understanding between Uber and Lyft now that they're not going to be undercutting each other on price? Well, I don't know what's what they think between the two of them, but um, yeah, I mean, it makes business sense for them to realize that they're effectively in an oligopoly, and in an oligopoly, like price wars hurt both hurt both players, and nobody really gains from it. Uh, so I think as both companies have made kind of the right sounds about you know getting the business to some kind of rational level, I think that's been encouraging to investors, and I think that's part of what's uh, brought the stocks up. Um, but twenty, the end of twenty twenty one is still a ways out. And the expectations that they face now to, you know, show, you know, much lower operating losses and still a lot of growth, um, I think it sets a lot of marks for them to hit. So I I see the stocks as still risky. At the same time, I could see investors getting more comfortable with them if there is this idea that, you know, that price competition won't be as intense as it once was. If that's the case, Dan, and the public or regulators start picking up on this, does it become a risk to the stock that they could see further regulatory pressure uh, in the next couple of years? Uh, I think that's always a risk with these big tech companies now, especially Uber. I, I, mean, I think one thing that underpins Uber a bit is the fact that it's so large and in so many cities, it's almost like the default taxi service mm-hmm. now that I think I think regulators are going to look at that. Um, you know, they're not nearly the size of companies like Google and Facebook and and Amazon that are getting that kind of scrutiny. But they are in the position where they could have that kind of dominance over over what's this key market. So I don't think Uber gets the luxury of necessarily being in a in a place where they're going to be free of that kind of scrutiny, even though their numbers don't really quite match these other tech giants yet. Yeah, fair enough. And, and obviously they've run into those issues in California uh, with the AB5 regulation that I know they're, they're still tied up in some litigation trying to prevent from going into place. Before we go, I just wanted to ask you about Uber Eats. You know, what are investors' expectations around that business now? Uh, they're pretty strong. I mean, from what I see, the uh, bookings for Uber Eats are expected to come up like 60-something, uh, a little over 60 percent. Um, for this quarter year over year, um, which is actually which is a big number because, you know, you've still got private companies out there like DoorDash and Postmates 
that are still, you know, they're competing hard to get share because they've got to go public at some point and show some good numbers for that. Um, so this is part, again, works against the rationalization theory, especially in the kind of food delivery business, where, which has been, I think, incredibly irrational up till now. All right, Dan, we look forward to what they uh, report after the bell and, and have to say about all these uh, lines of business. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Dan Gallagher with The Wall Street Journal. Well, first it was the U.S. trade tensions. Now it's the coronavirus. A look at how a major slowdown in Chinese tourist travel could impact economies around the world next. Welcome back. The flow of Chinese tourists to the U.S. and other countries had already slowed thanks to trade tensions. But now the coronavirus is threatening to make that a lot worse. Seema Modi joins me now with a look at what happens when Chinese tourists can't travel, Seema. Yeah, Kelly, Oxford Economics is already forecasting the U.S. to experience a loss of 1.6 million visitors from mainland China this year due to the coronavirus. So that could be significant for big cities like New York, San Francisco and Los Angeles that have benefited from the rise in Chinese travel over the past decade. Even with the decline we saw last year due to the trade tensions, China still remains the third largest source of travel to the U.S. And they're the biggest spenders on average, spending about $6,500 here in the, in the U.S. compared to the 4000 spent on average by other foreign visitors. And Kelly, that's everything from food and beverage, shopping, uh, tickets to national parks. So Absolutely. they really play a big role in the U.S. economy. And not just in the U.S. either. I mean, I, <laughs> I remember actually going to Iceland when it seemed as though every other tourist who was traveling there was a, a Chinese traveler. I think this could have an impact around the world, right? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. In fact, economists say most pain will be felt in Asia, where we've seen a surge in Chinese travel over the past couple of years, rising middle class, more discretionary income being spent on vacation and trips to many countries like Thailand and Japan. In fact, these economies, they really depend on tourist spend. If you look at Thailand, about 10% of its GDP comes from tourist spending. Wow. Indonesia this morning warning that it could see a $4 billion hit to its economy because of these travel restrictions. So there certainly could be pain uh, for a lot of these Asian economies. This matters because coming into this year, January 1st, the expectation was that these emerging economies would rebound thanks to the central bank easing we saw last year. But this coronavirus could certainly challenge that thesis. And I remember hotel CEOs last year saying the loss of, to some extent, Chinese, but just international visitors in general was really rippling across the industry. They've just got to be you know, frustrated now over yes. this, especially. Yeah, last year, the big challenge was trade tensions. The hope was that with the signing of this phase one deal and, you know, a better uh, U.S.-China relationship that we would see a, a rise in travel. But now we have this coronavirus that could certainly change that estimate. Next week, we get earnings from Hilton on Tuesday, Expedia and TripAdvisor later in the week. That could provide some more commentary and clarity as to how these big travel companies are sort of uh, estimating the impact of the coronavirus. We've heard from the, cr the cruise companies, as we discussed. Absolutely. Now we're going to look to the hotel and lodging companies. Yeah, you're right. No, clarity. that's absolutely going to be something to watch. Seema, thank you so much. Yeah. Seema Modi here. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash.